Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, uh, wherever you're watching this from. Uh, as Dave mentioned earlier, we are beginning uh, a new series today, looking at the, the New Testament letter of James. Uh, and over the coming weeks, we're going to open up this letter and see what it has to teach us uh, and how it applies to us today in 21st century Britain. And now we've called this series Faith That Works. And the reason for that uh, is because this is a very practical letter. James uh, isn't interested in, in kind of nice concepts or fine ideas. Uh, James writes in a way that is packed full of practical wisdom. Uh, he's particularly interested in how the Christian faith uh, works its way out, how the Christian faith is expressed in our day-to-day lives, in our words and in our actions. Uh, And so uh, we're going to dive into that. But before we uh, kind of move on with the rest of the series today, my hope is to just give us a bit of background to set the scene and to unpack just the first verse. In the following weeks, we'll we'll look at larger chunks, but today we are just going to look at that one verse. Uh, Now, that might not seem much. You might think, oh, just one verse. Um, But let me assure you, there is plenty uh, in that one verse uh, to occupy us uh, and to speak into our lives today. Uh, And so I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read and we'll begin to unpack it together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray would you help us by your spirit to understand it, to apply it today. Would it not just be uh, information for our heads, uh, Lord, but I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Uh, Would you change us today? Would you uh, cause your word to live uh, as we read and as we seek to understand and apply it today? Amen. Good. Well, uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to open it and turn with me to the book of James. uh, And we're going to read, as I said, just verse one today. James writes this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now, as I said, Just one verse, but with plenty to teach us. Before we uh, get into it, we need to understand this letter, who it's written by and who it's written to. And that will help us get the meaning out of it. So first up, who was it written by? Well, it's written by uh, a man called James. Who was James? Well, James was the half-brother of Jesus. James was a son of Mary and Joseph. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, when he went back to heaven uh, to be with the Father, James became a prominent leader in the first century Christian church in Jerusalem. Uh, It was made up mostly as a church of Jews who had come to faith in Jesus. So they were Christian Jews, or you may have heard them uh, kind of uh, the expression messianic Jews which just means they were uh, Jews who had come to put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. Uh, Now, while James was leading the church, it had gone through many trials and challenges. He'd had to lead them through some very tough times. Uh, They'd endured a famine that caused great 
poverty uh, to sweep across the region. They'd had to endure persecution from the Jewish authorities who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God who'd come to save us. Uh, and they sought to uh, oppress and oppose any who would teach that. And eventually James uh, was brutally murdered by those Jewish religious elite who had rejected Jesus. James was known as a godly man who led the church with wisdom and with courage in the face of great trial and challenge. He was a gifted, respected and prominent leader. And that's James, an impressive guy. But who was his audience? To whom did he address this letter? Well, Firstly, we need to note that this is a slightly unusual letter uh, in, the, in the setting of the New Testament. See, most of the letters we have in the New Testament are written to either a very specific group of people or to an individual. So Paul writes to churches in Philippi or Galatia, Corinth, Rome and elsewhere. We have letters written to Timothy and, and to Titus. But this letter is addressed to a much wider group, that not tied to a location either. See, James writes, and we read here in verse 1, he writes to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, there we go. We know who wrote it and who too. The, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Who? <laughs> the what? I guess most of you hear that and you just think, I don't even know who that is. Like, that means nothing to me. The 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, <laughs> I'm going to help us to see who it is that James is writing to now. So the, the 12 tribes, first up to say, is a shorthand way in the Bible of saying God's people. In the Old Testament, we read about the 12 tribes of Israel, Abraham's descendants, God's chosen people, who through their father Abraham, by the grace of God, were recipients of God's blessing. And what's more, they were identified as God's people, his possession, his beloved so is this then a letter to the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people? Well, actually, no. Because, you see, when Jesus came, he expanded the understanding of who God's chosen people were. He showed that it was never just about an ethnic group, but that God's desire was for all the nations of the world. Jesus came to proclaim good news to people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. This had always been God's plan. Jesus invited all who would come to him, all who would come to receive forgiveness from him, to receive new life in him, those who would have faith in him. He came to invite them into the family of God the people of God. 
that God's chosen people now are those who receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour, those who have faith in him. Other New Testament writers expand this idea. In in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham, God's people. In Romans 4, we read that, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, that's the Jews, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, as, as Peter writes, actually in some ways a similar letter to James's, he writes to God's elect exiles, scattered, so it's a similar greeting to James's. He's writing to the people of God, scattered, exiled away from their true home. And then he goes on to explain who these exiles are. He says this in verse 2, these exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. In other words, Peter says that God's chosen people are those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Those who have been made right with God by Jesus' blood spilt at the cross and who are becoming more like Jesus by the Spirit of God at work in them. Not just ethnic Jews, but all who come to Christ. And I believe that this is who James had in mind when he wrote this letter. James is writing to Christians, to those who trust in Jesus to save them. These are God's people. And where are they? When he writes, scattered among the nations or dispersed throughout the world. The picture of being scattered is a a familiar one to God's people. See, their ancestors and ours, if we are in Christ, experienced slavery in Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness looking for their home. They walked through exile in Babylon. James's first readers would have felt this acutely as they read these words. See, they were in a Roman-occupied world with all that meant in terms of pagan worship and allegiance to Caesar as Lord. They were oppressed by the Jews who had rejected Jesus. Everywhere they looked, they were out of step with society under pressure to abandon hope and conform to culture. They lived with a clear understanding of what it meant to be strangers in a strange land, with an everyday experience of what it meant to be in exile. James's letter then could be described as being like an open letter, 
to first century believers. And it applies just as solidly to us today. You see, as Christians, we should be able to identify with this feeling of being strangers in a strange land. Of being dispersed around the world and away from our true home. You see, we live now in exile. If you're a Christian, you are in exile. You might think, well, well, how? You see, the Bible talks about Christians as being in exile on many occasions. We face the struggles and challenges of living in a world that is not our home. We live as exiles on the earth with all the pain and challenge that that brings. A world of greed and pain and suffering, oppression and injustice with the ever-present pressure to conform to the world's way of living, to prioritise the things that the world prioritises, to hold dear the things that society, that the world holds dear. We are God's people, but we're not yet home. Seeking to live well in exile, but also eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. The restoration of all things and our entrance home into the new Jerusalem, into our true homeland, into the presence of God forever. But sadly, I think, as Western 21st century Christians, we seldom feel like we're in exile at all. We feel very comfortable, very at home in the surrounding culture. In fact, it would often seem that there is nothing whatsoever to set us apart from the surrounding world at all. We worry about the same things. We strive after the same things. We buy into the life that the advertisers sell to us. We hold the same values, aspire to live the same lifestyles. We use the same metrics to make our decisions. How will it benefit me? How will it benefit my family? Is it in our best interest? We have the same concern for our own reputation as the world does. What will they think of me if I... We're so surrounded by the world and its messaging that we often unthinkingly and uncritically just consume and conform to it. But guys, this should not be the case. If you are a Christian, then you ought to feel out of place in this world. Not weird for the sake of weird, but out of step with culture. When was the last time that you felt like you were in exile? When was the last time that your obedience to God 
put you at odds with the world and all it holds dear? When was the last time that your beliefs and convictions as a Christian meant that you felt out of place? Now, don't get me wrong. Our position as exiles doesn't mean that we should uh, kind of disengage and hide away from culture uh, or that we don't care what happens to culture. You know, you get some Christians who, who would say that kind of thing. They have this kind of bomb shelter mentality. We just need to kind of hive off and hide away uh, and, and disengage and, and keep at arm's length and, uh, and don't engage at all. Well, that's not what I'm advocating and I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches and I think we'll see as we work through James's letter that that's certainly uh, not what he would encourage us to do. Instead, it means that we understand we're in the world, but not of it. We understand that we're those who can truly bring hope and life into a hurting and broken world, not just blend into the background. Our king is Jesus, and we live here and now under his rule and reign. Our lives and spheres of influence should be like kingdom outposts in this world. Light in the darkness, calling others into the light, calling others out of death and into life. And where we can, seeking to bring a godly influence into the world around us, acting justly, loving mercy and walking with humility. So, if you're longing to live, to please God, but you know that you feel the pressure to conform, or you feel tempted to despair as you look around you at all that's happening in the world right now, then this letter is for you. James sets out in this letter to help us see what it means to live well as exiles, to live well as God's scattered people, as strangers in a strange land, and how to live well as mature mature disciples of Jesus. This isn't pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is a letter packed with gritty here-and-now application, and I'm really looking forward to getting into it more in the coming weeks. But James actually doesn't waste any time at all in getting into the meat of stuff. Even in his opening greeting, he models something for us that we must not lose sight of. I wonder, did you spot it as we read it earlier? Right here, in these opening words, there is a vital truth that we must grasp. James has one shot at getting our attention in his letter. He has one chance up front to lay out his credentials for his readers. Now remember, James was a gifted, respected, and prominent senior leader who has a great track record of leading the church in difficult times. He was a man deserving great respect. He was the brother of Jesus. Now, you might think he would write something like this at the start of his letter. James, the brother of Christ the Messiah, 
born of Mary, leader of the Jerusalem church, esteemed amongst the council of leaders. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what does James want us to know about him? What is his view of himself as he introduces this letter? Let's read. It's that he's a servant. He begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a world where we want to be thought of as important, where people fight for prominence, a world of ladder climbing and pushing for promotion, a world where we want the recognition that we think we deserve, a world where we feed off people's approval and long to present ourselves in the best light to everyone we meet, where people will take, in many cases, literally dozens of selfies in order to choose the one to post on social media, but not before it's been through a careful process of editing and filters. A world where we post our selected highlights and best bits for everyone to see. Now let's be clear, James wasn't living in a different world. People were just as concerned with how they were perceived and their standing in society then as now because these tendencies and desires flow out of the condition of the human heart, not out of our technological developments. So you would expect James to give a good account of himself as he opens his letter. To say, this is what you need to know about me and why you should listen to me. But James simply says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he says that, it's, it's a way of saying, my whole life is devoted to doing what Jesus commands. I'm living under his rule, under his lordship. I'm living to please him, not to please myself. My life is not my own, but I belong to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one defining thing that James wants us to know about himself at the outset of this letter. And it sets the tone for everything that's to come. But it also makes absolute sense. Because Christianity is about conforming, uh, not to the pattern of this world, but conforming to the likeness of Jesus. Christianity is about living in obedience to Christ and becoming more like Christ. James's introduction is a model of mature discipleship. Because it shows that he is a man who's becoming more like Jesus. Jesus, you see, is the perfect model of humility, of service and submission. We read in Philippians chapter 2 that our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness 
and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the perfect model of humility, of obedience, and of service. And so we respond. He first loved us and gave himself up for us. He took the penalty of your sin upon himself. He humbled himself, standing in your place, dying the death that you deserved, so that you might receive the life that was rightfully his. In view of God's love, in view of his mercy displayed in Christ Jesus, in view of the forgiveness that we receive at the cross, the only response that makes any sense, the only response that, that is acceptable in any way is a life of wholehearted devotion to God, a life of service to him. And guys, my prayer for us at Foundation Church is that if we're known for anything at this time, that if we're known for anything, let it be that we're humble servants of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Those whose lives are wholly and utterly devoted to him. And as a consequence of that, that we are given over to loving and serving others. My longing is that we'd be known as a people who spend our time and energy for the good of those around us and for the glory of God. Being a servant means asking, Lord what would you have me do? Servants don't do as they please, do they? Yeah, we know that. <laughs> Servants do as their master bids them, as their master desires. If we, the scattered people of God, are like James, servants of Christ our Lord, then we must ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do? How can I please you? How can I honour you? And that question is raised at the start of this letter. And the rest of the letter serves as a response and an answer. It's like this is what it looks like to live well in exile. This is what it means to live to please Christ our Lord in response to his love for us. But it all begins by surrendering to him as Lord. I want to encourage you this week to remember again that you're not here as a Christian just to blend into the world. 
I want to encourage you to recognize again your status as exile in this world and to live to bring light into the darkness, to live to bring hope to the hopeless. Guys, submit again to Jesus as Lord. Don't let your values and priorities be determined by this world, but instead allow your values and priorities to be determined by the word of God. Ask him, how can I live for you today? Do you ever ask that? I want to encourage you this week. Ask it. Ask it with your Bibles open. Ask it on your knees in prayer. Lord, I want to live for you today. I want to please you and honor you today. Jesus, my Lord, how can I please you today? I want to encourage you this week to make use of our community Bible reading plan. Uh, And as you do, to, to be asking that question Lord, how does this affect my life? How does this change the way I might live to serve and to please you for your glory and for the good of those around me? I'm going to pray now to conclude uh, this time and then Joe and Scott are going to lead us uh, again in one final song. Lord, we're sorry for the times that we make it about our wants and our desires. Lord, we're sorry for the times when we look to others to to serve us and to to exalt us and to, to lift us up and to glorify us. Lord, we're sorry for the times when we place ourselves at the top of the pile as the number one. We're sorry that we so often live as though we are Lord of our lives. (laughs) Jesus, we recognize that true freedom is found in in surrendering to you as Lord, that that life is found in recognizing that we uh, can't get there on our own, but that we need a savior, we need you. That true freedom is found in humbling ourselves before you and saying, you are Lord, and you are Savior, and we trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live well as exiles this week. Not to keep in step with the world and its ways, but instead to keep in step with your Spirit. Would you help us to live well this week for your glory and the good of our neighbors? Amen.